Do you know what's so wonderful when the presence of God is here? Is that the presence of God is here. And you know where it says that the kingdom is at hand? Well, literally, it's here, right here around us. And so I just couldn't help myself. Is this, well, I think there's probably more than one of you who, because of the journey here, you have got back pain right now. Can you stand up? You? There's a few of you here. Okay. And then there's one other thing. Uh, This isn't anything to do with the journey. Uh, Somebody has a, you can't smell very well. You can't smell fragrances. There's a problem with your nasal cavity. Are you here? It's you. Okay. Oh, was that joy? Joy. Okay. Um, right, can those around you just lay a hand on the exact place? You, you guys, you girls who are standing up, just where it is. Where's the, pra- the pain? And I just want somebody lay a hand on the pain. Plonk a hand on her nose. Uh, lay a hand on the pain. And we're just going to together pray. Holy Spirit, we just know you're here. We don't even need to summon you because you are already here ministering. And so in the name of Jesus, we speak to these conditions, the cause, the root, the very parts that are affected, those the parts that are in pain, the nose that can't smell, and we just uh, speak healing in the name of Jesus. As simple as that, I want you to try and just uh, move around a little bit and just tell me if any of the pain has eased. Just start wiggling around and then just give me a wave if there's an improvement. Now, if you're the one with the nose, you need to smell, you need, someone needs to give us some perfume to smell. So give me a little wave if you feel like there's a sense of relief. Okay, the woman in the red. What what were you feeling when we started? A tenseness, and now you feel uh, it's changed? Wonderful, thank you. Anybody else? Just give me a sense of anything changed? It's relief. Like, what do you mean, like, relief? from? If it was a ten, what is it now? Like eight, seven, nine, four? Wow, that's pretty good. Actually, why don't you pray again? Just do it, have another go, because the four is pretty wild. That's great. Um, Yeah, for those of you who are still standing, we just, again, we just welcome you, Holy Spirit. We just thank you that you're here. And we just command this pain to completely dissipate. And uh, just the presence of God to go right into the very root of these places of pain. And um, we break the power of this pain, this discomfort in Jesus' name. Okay, girls, just give me a, 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 give a little wiggle, you know, move around a little bit, and then just, just, just see whether there's any change. How are we with the, with the four? Is it about the same, or is it a little bit? It's about the same. Okay, that's fine. That's great. Anybody else? What about the nose? Have we smelt something? You think so? Like, both backs are good. And the nose seems to be like, you're, fit, you're smelling it really strong. Wow, that's wonderful. Uh, how about the, the, the woman over here? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. How about the woman in the red here that's standing up? Any, anything going on there? You feel like a release. So is that release from pain or like with something stiff and it feels like it's released? Just looser. Okay. Okay, that's wonderful. Wonderful. And you're still standing over here. Anything happening? Yes, no? Yeah. You can smell? Like, has somebody given you something to smell? Like, something that you... 
You can smell it in the air. That's wonderful. Well, praise the Lord. That's so exciting. I couldn't resist it because, you know, it's like when there was such a sense of the presence of the Lord when the girls were giving out those words. I thought, Lord, you're here. When you're here in prophecy, you're you're going to be here in healing. All manner of things are going on right next to us. And uh, she's laughing. So just, I just want to encourage you to, to step out, you know, and take more risks. Anyway, that's what this whole weekend's about. I'm talking tonight about a cause not just worth living for, but a cause worth dying for. And as leaders, I think we so need to be reminded. I grew up on the mission field. My parents were missionaries in Chile. And my mom and dad went out to Chile on a ship. It took them three weeks in the late 50s. My mother was a fairly new Christian, so their dream had been to go to Africa, but the African Missionary Societies wouldn't take my mum because she was too young a Christian. She'd only been a Christian a few years. But South America was desperate, so they went off on this ship. And um, I don't know if I can... Sorry. Sorry about that. I just thought I'd get a dry throat if I don't do it. Anyway, so they go off on their ship to Chile with a young baby, Within the first year, there was a terrible earthquake. It was something, I think it was like 10 point something on the Richter scale, and it caused a terrible tsunami. Uh, My mother remembers standing in the road with my sister, who was a little baby, and the pavement just coming up like waves coming towards her, and then the ground split open, buildings came down, and then the tsunami wiped out just lots and lots of lives and livestock and that. But those things were not reported in those days because it was the you know, an underdeveloped country, you know, the West wasn't that interested. Um, And so then, later on, while they were in Chile, ministering there, there were more and more earthquakes. I remember being um, about seven or eight and lying, having, getting downstairs to my parents' room when pieces of the ceiling were coming down. And my father had to leave us to go across uh, the city to see whether the other missionary families were, were okay. And just being so frightened. We, uh, I grew up um, in a time of a lot of political unrest in South America. So um, it was during the Allende regime, and uh, there was a kind of a, a revolt against um, Allende at the time, and there was lots of guerrilla warfare. And outside my bedroom window um, was a riverbed, and it was most of the year it was dry. And so the guerrilla warfare would happen in the riverbed, and there were bullets ricocheting and flying around everywhere. So my parents put a cupboard and um, other, every, anything they could find against the window, and then they moved my bed, and my sisters, we all arranged our rooms, to another part of the, be- of the room, so that if a bullet was to come in, it would ricochet around the room, and it, by the time it hit us, it wouldn't hurt us. There were shortages of food. I remember we used to queue for about an hour for a little tiny pat of butter, and I remember my mother getting a big sack of flour um, and being so excited, but we had to sieve it through net curtains uh, because it, had, it was riddled with rat droppings. So we sieved it, and then my mother put raisins in the bread so we wouldn't know if we came across a rat dropping. <laughs> and, uh, and then I remember going to my friend's house for dinner and her parents telling me that my mum and dad were on a murder list. And uh, so I knew from when I was a little girl that my parents were living for a cause that was worth dying for. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about fulfilling an adventure, a dream that they had. This was a life of radical obedience to Jesus, and it may mean that their lives would be risked. And um, if it hadn't been for that, if it was about anything else that they were living for, they wouldn't have lasted 18 years in South America. 
And still they would say that those years were formational, that actually when they came back to work in England, some of the hardships, some of the emotional turmoil, some of the things that happened amongst uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, some of the sort of betrayals or letdowns and, um, yeah, some of the losses were even greater, actually. And I think that some of us here have experienced things in the course of ministry And it may not be life-threatening, but it has threatened our faith. It has threatened our confidence in relationships around us, in those who maybe oversee us or those who we have loved dearly in the kingdom. You know, we have seen some things and we carry wounds. But is the cause worth it? When Paul is called into ministry or when he's called by the Lord Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus And he has this extraordinary vision of the resurrected Christ. And um, he's blinded by it. And Ananias has a vision. The Lord comes to him and tells him that he has to find Paul, who is uh, on a street called Straight Street. And he's got to find Paul and he's got to tell him uh, about the calling that's on his life. But also he's to lay hands on Paul so that Paul will receive his sight. And I was really intrigued by a little um, phrase that comes here as the Lord is speaking to Ananias, who is terrified because he's heard all these terrible things about Paul's persecution of the early church. And, and he's challenging the Lord. Um, and the Lord says, uh, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry out my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That is what the Lord wanted to show Paul. And um, I wonder how many of us, when we were called into ministry, were actually shown how much we were going to suffer before we took up this incredible adventure. I certainly um, hadn't fully taken it into consideration, some of the things that were going to happen along the way. We um, have a number of refugees and asylum seekers in Nottingham. Uh, I don't know why they find their way up to Nottingham from, you know, where they start out. But anyway, they end up in Nottingham. And through our ministry called The Arches, which is a benevolence ministry that we have that is now rather large, um, we have connected with a number of these asylum seekers and refugees. And one of them is a guy called Enoch. And Enoch escaped Zimbabwe. He was um, a church leader there. He had a number of orphanages, old people's homes, and he was hung from a tree, whipped and uh, stabbed several times, and then escaped with his wife and small child. But he had to leave behind two of his sons, who were at the time about seven and ten. And his wife uh, looked just continually heartbroken. I mean, the stress on her body and face. But Enoch was extraordinary, and I remember people would say, Enoch, how do you cope? And he just said, you know, I don't know God's ways. They're mysterious, but but I will always worship the Lord and serve him. And he had such an incredible attitude. And it took about 10 years before we managed to get his kids back to England and uh, pay for their tickets home. And when we met his sons, they were just wonderful boys, really mature in their faith. And yet, having lived all those years apart from their dad, um, it was actually such an incredible testimony. You know, during the 1980s, uh, it's reported that 270,000 
men and women died for their faith. But now it's over 500,000 around the world are dying, literally dying for their faith. And as I said earlier, the drama for us may not be life and death. But actually, as we live this life serving the Lord in ministry, there are costs and there are challenges and there is suffering. When John and Eleanor Mumford, and some of you will know Ellie, she's just such an incredibly loving, extraordinary large personality. And when they were called to plant the first vineyard in the UK, it was very controversial because John Wimber had promised the established churches in the UK that they would not plant vineyards. The problem was is that the Lord was speaking to the Brits, people like John and Eleanor, John and myself, uh, Rick and Ulu Williams, Chris and Fliss Lane, we had loads of prophetic words and dreams that we would be part of the vineyard movement in the UK. And so there came a time when John Wimber couldn't um, deny that God was speaking to the Brits. And so he had to make a decision. Was he going to upset his friends that he'd made in the established churches? Because originally the vineyard had been an extraordinary blessing, and still is to the Church of England, particularly in the UK. The vineyard has had an incredible impact worldwide. And so, you know, it was, it was a real heartache because John never wanted to disrupt the wonderful work that had begun uh, through the vineyard in the UK. But it was clear that God was speaking, that John and Eleanor should be released. And when John and Eleanor went to England, and we, we felt the Lord call us to join them and help them, and that would be our training uh, before we went to plant our own church in Nottingham. And in that first year, I remember they received a number of letters from people who had been really close friends. But these letters were deeply upsetting. I mean, they were Christian brothers and sisters who did not understand why vineyards needed to be planted in the UK. Uh, why there are so many people who are unchurched, dechurched, backslidden, totally unchurched in the sense that they have no, they've not, don't have any history of church. But the vineyard is so right for those kinds of people. And now it's proven. But in those days, it was heartbreaking. And I remember, you know, weeping with John and Eleanor over some of these letters. One of their close friends, almost family to them, walked the other side of the street and wouldn't speak to them because they were starting the first vineyard. Now, they persevered with those relationships. And 10 years later, those people are friends again, all of them. And it's a wonderful thing. But that's because John and Eleanor kept persevering in those relationships and didn't, you know, become bitter. And in fact, they never talk about it. I talk about it more because it really impacted me, some of the cost um, that we will experience I remember them talking uh, about a situation, a, a time when John Wimber was sitting in a room, and Cindy, you might have been there, um, but I'm just talking to Cindy Nicholson over there, and he asked uh, a number of key leaders in the vineyard movement, I don't know if they were just US or whether they were worldwide, he said, you know, what has been the cost in the course of ministry, in the course of being part of the vineyard, what has been the cost? And people talked about loss of loved ones, um, stress-related sicknesses, moving far away from loved ones, you know, no support in a time of need, um, children rebelling and uh, leaving the faith, marriage strain, team members having affairs and, and being a total disruption to the early church plant. And uh, they talked about spiritual attack, financial hardship. And uh, clearly, life had been incredibly hard. 
But instead of John Wimber at the end of that, you know, having tears in his eyes, full of compassion, and, you know, just saying, oh, you know, that's so hard for you, and we must minister to one another. He just said this, and who should get in for anything less? You know, um, we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. Our great friends, Tom and Helen, they are our associates. And we would have had either of them as associate pastors independently of each other because Helen is incredible and Tom is incredible in his own right. But we first met them when they um, lived in a house for um, young offenders who had come out of prison and were facing homelessness. And uh, my John, for a season, went to work for this organization. It was a real eye-opener especially if you ever work with the urban poor or the poor, as I would describe, with chips on their shoulders, you know, angry, the world owes them something. It's not the grateful poor that we would find in South America who are starving and begging outside of the supermarkets, who are delightful, who probably have, you know, respect for their parents and that sort of thing. These are kids who who don't love or like or respect anybody in authority. And they lived in one of these houses and they had had all their wedding presents stolen And regularly their room was broken into and the very kids that they were trying to help would steal from them. And uh, we realized that when we had them join us on staff, we had a couple who were going to be incredibly robust. And that has been the way it has been, you know, working with them. Now, Paul urges us in Romans chapter 12, he calls us to be living sacrifices. Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And I was thinking recently about what does it mean to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? You know, in in the days in which Paul would have written this, he's speaking to a culture that really gets sacrifice, sacrificial, you know, offerings to the Lord and to other gods in a the Roman culture. And yet he's talking about offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And in our, in our day and age, it's kind of, how does that, what does that mean, offering our bodies? And I'm just thinking about the culture that we live in at the moment that cares nothing for our souls, nothing for our spiritual well-being, but apparently seems to want to offer us everything that would pamper our fleshly desires, our bodily desires, our, you know, whether it's food of every kind. I mean, I cannot tell you, I had to tweet um, about this wonderful place we went to eat um, in Duluth uh, here with, um, with Mike and uh, Brenda. I have never eaten anything so delicious in my life. I want to stay here just because of this incredible chicken sat on a uh, a sweet potato with a blueberry and shallot sauce, which was to die for. And I'll never forget it. I'm, I've got to make it when I go home, try and make it. But, um, do you know, we just have every food imaginable, uh, literally within a, a three-minute drive. You know, I love to be pampered. I love to have a massage. Everything in me wants to be thin. I did it uh, when I was younger, suffer from an eating... I was practically anorexic and bulimic. But, and, and I'm really, you know, that isn't my issue now. But I do like to be fit and thin. And I get quite stressed if I can't kind of be careful about what I eat. Um, I love clothes. I absolutely love clothes. I love shopping for clothes. 
and uh, every so often it gets a bit out of control because I have way more than 24 pairs of black shoes. I have probably 100 pairs of shoes and I can't bring myself to throw any away um, because I love them all and they're all one day going to come back into fashion. And uh, so if they're not worn out, they're stored up above. I just love shoes. Um, I, I, these, these, all these things give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. And so the idea of being called onto, you know, to Africa or somewhere where these things wouldn't be available is just the worst thing for me. But every so often I have to challenge these things that meet my bodily desires. And um, we're entering a time of Lent, and uh, it... At one point, I remember the Lord saying, no clothes for a whole season, no clothes, no shopping for clothes, no shop window, no anything, no clothes. And um, that was really, yeah, it was good. It was a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, what does it mean in, in other ways? There are some of us here who, you know, you might be single and you would love to be married. And at this time in your life, the Lord is saying it's celibacy and it's focus on what I've called you to do and let me worry about finding you the right person and it's incredibly hard and there's an element of suffering involved of, of not you know looking on you know all these different date sites because you've exhausted looking around your own church for the right it, wonderful potential leader or already experienced leader that might be the right partner for you and the Lord says just put it on hold give yourself to me but there's pain in that there are some here who are you know, in, in financial difficulty and, um, and, and we're consumed with worry because we don't know whether we're going to have enough. And the Lord says, let me take it. Let me take the worry. Let me take the strain. You know, there are some of us who can't have children, you know, and we wonder whether, you know, we'll ever really fit in with all the hundreds of, everybody around you seems to be pregnant and having babies. And, um, you know, there are just so many things that the Lord says, I see the challenge. I see the suffering. I see the cost and how hard it is to continue on in ministry, to be leaders that other people uh, look to, and, uh, and you're struggling and you're in pain. There's um, Paul again in 2 Corinthians. He, he actually begins to boast about his sufferings. And the, the chapter is headed, you know, Paul boasting about his sufferings. He says this in, in chapter 11 of two of, of the second Corinthians. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from the rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. Isn't that true? I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, we may not have experienced any of those things, but we do know what it is to be without sleep. We do know what it is to face the pressure and the concern for the churches and the areas of ministry that we lead. And during times of hardship, when it really gets rough, are we still living for the cause? Are we still focused on what life here is all about? One of my friends, Linda, she um, has developed a very, very aggressive form of ovarian cancer. So she's had major surgery. She's lost all her hair. She's been going through chemo. 
But you know what's been so incredible is that John was telling me, John Mumford, because he, uh, she's in southwest London, he was saying how Linda, she said, you know, if the Lord wants to take me, I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm ready to go to heaven. But equally, she's up at every opportunity for prayer because she also believes that she isn't done with and there's a cause to live for. But both ways, she's joyful. Both ways, she is seriously, she's not fighting for life and grasping onto life for the sake of living. She's only willing to grasp hold of it for the sake of the cause. So if the Lord wants me to stay, it will work out and I'm here and I'm going to fight. But if I go, I'm at peace. I'm at peace with that. I'm full of joy. I'm excited. And it's just, it's such an incredible testimony. Um, and, and it, you know, there's no sense of anybody feeling bad around Linda. It's, it's an incredible testimony. I remember um, reading uh, this little book that isn't on sale, but I picked it up at the Anaheim Vineyard. It's written by Lance Pitluck, who is one of the, he's part of the leadership of the whole movement over here. And Lance writes this um, when they were leading their church in New York. And um, this happened, I think, over 10 years ago. It started as a run-of-the-mill sickness. On Thursday, we took our three-year-old son, John Robert, to the doctor and were quickly told he had the flu. It was going around, but he would be over it in three to four days, no big deal. We took him home, we put him to bed and began to watch over him, like any parent would. On Saturday night, he began to breathe in a shallow, laboured way. Late that night, his eyes rolled back into his head and he died. Wow, what a shock. We rushed him to the hospital, but the staff could do nothing. Apparently, he had caught a strep infection, which had turned septic and actually killed his organs. We're still not exactly sure what happened. Nothing competes with this as being the rawest pain that our family has ever experienced. We were a mess, but there was the church. Thirteen years before, we had planted a church in New York that had thrived, and we had gathered a significant amount of people around us. We were in pain like never before. One of the really hard things for us was to go through this in front of people. We could feel them watching, as they do with leaders, and asking, what will they do with this? Can they survive this? Will they be able to trust God through this? I clearly remember being at my son's memorial service a few days after he died. The worship team started to play, and I realized that I had a decision. Everything within me wanted to quit life and ministry. I had to choose to live and go on and be a worshipper of God at that moment, which I had very little understanding of. I couldn't sing or I would burst out crying. So I simply chose to raise one hand unto the Lord. I was saying to him, I will continue. I will trust you and lean not on my own understanding. Do you know some of us have suffered to that level and some of us may face extraordinary levels of hardship and suffering but it's good to be warned it's good to know that these things may come around tomorrow i'm going to tell my some of my story uh, to everybody who's here but part of it um involves a terrible accident that i was involved with when we were working with john and alana mumford we were so happy working with john and alana we loved serving them and actually Every few years, we would seek the Lord as to whether it was time to go and plant in Nottingham, and it felt like the Lord was completely silent. 
And uh, we'd been with them probably, I think it was seven years. And we'd just moved to a beautiful house. Our kids were in the best schools. And um, the night before, it was Saturday night, one of my friends called me up and she said, will you take me, can you give me a lift to church with my two kids? And so I took, I picked her up and took her to church um, in one of our cars. We had two cars at the time. And then John followed behind uh, 10 minutes later. And um, on the journey there, I did a right-hand turn. We drive differently to over here. So it was a right-hand turn across traffic, traffic lights. And you can turn when it's green, and they were green. And um, I didn't see the oncoming car. And the oncoming car crashed into mine. My car rolled over, and little Rachel, Michelle's daughter, was killed. And it was my fault. There was absolutely no doubt about it. I had turned in front of the car that came. And I hated myself. I could not understand how I could have made such a terrible decision. I was consumed with Michelle's grief. I didn't seem to be able to disentangle myself from the pain that she was in. Because, you know, when you lose a child, a seven-year-old child, it's nobody prepares you for that. It's completely the wrong way around. You know, we may expect to lose our parents, but but not our children. And... Um, and her husband was a Muslim, and uh, actually they were amazing. They were amazing, but I could not understand. I was covered in shame. I couldn't face looking at people. I just couldn't look people in the eye. I was in agony, and it went on for months. And I had been free of bulimia for years. I'd been completely healed, and all of a sudden I was throwing up my food again. I was a total mess, and I was highly conscious of everybody looking at me. And in fact, we, Rachel and my children went to the same school. And at the school gate, I, I, everybody was talking about me. And, um, and it was incredibly difficult and incredibly painful. But the Lord did come to me. I did feel connected to the Lord, though I had lots and lots of questions. And I continued to press into worship, even though I was so confused, so confused as to how, how and why this had happened. And um, everything, it felt like everything was being sabotaged. You know, I, I, I really couldn't have said at that point that I would ever function normally again. And in fact, my mother has a very good friend who experienced, as she was looking after one of her friend's children, uh, the little boy jumped off a wall and hit his head and died. And she has lived for 20, 30 years, uh, never having recovered. And... Um, but I remember I would go to our guest room and just sob and sob and just have all these questions. Um, and then on one occasion, the, the presence of the Lord came really powerfully into the room. And, um, and I felt the Lord say, Debs, you can go one way or the other. You can continue with the questions. You can be covered in shame. You'll never function as I intended you to function. You won't fulfill the purposes that I have for you. You will allow the enemy to sabotage your life and your children's lives. Everybody's going to pay. Or you can let Jesus take this. He can take your pain. He can take Michelle's grief. He can take your shame. He can take the questions that don't have answers right now. And um, before I could even cognitively agree that this was such a good deal, 
I felt like this blackness oozed out of me into Jesus. And I felt this incredible freedom. And um, it was just an incredible, incredible experience. But I was on the verge of losing it. I was on the verge of losing everything that God had for us. And certainly life has been the most incredible adventure. Um, there are still risks, massive risks, aren't there, when we go on the adventure. There are risks that, that threaten our pride. Um, I remember when our church had been established in Nottingham and we faced raising a, a huge amount of money. Uh, our church was about 350 in size and there was no other place that would fit us in. And we were, uh, we'd already, we then multiplied services and we grew to about, I think, 600, so one in the morning, one in the evening. But we could not squeeze any more people into what was a room that should only seat 200 people. And um, we began to search for places. We couldn't rent anywhere else. It was just a nightmare. And finally, it became apparent we were going to have to build our own building. And um, our church was only about five years old, and we had to ask them for a huge amount of money. And we had no... If only we had a few rich people that we could take out for dinner, but nobody was... Everybody was just ordinary teachers, you know, and students, loads of students. And uh, on top of the... Um, the huge challenge of asking the church to uh, give us their money sacrificially, we felt the Lord tell us that 20% of the money that would be raised for our building should be set aside for the poor, church planting and evangelism. It wouldn't be for our own benefit. It couldn't be for the building. And uh, we, we thought we were nuts, but um, we agreed to it. And the next day, I remember uh, an envelope coming through the letterbox uh, with £20,000 in it from one of our students. And I felt the Lord say, Debs, you don't know where this money's going to come from, but, you know, keep on going. Uh, but before that had happened, I remember talking to Eleanor on the phone and saying, Eleanor, what if we tell the church about these plans? And what if, what if we don't raise the money? You know, we make all these statements about we're going to build this building. This is what it's going to look like. We've all got to give sacrificially. It's, 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 it's not equal gifts. It's equal sacrifice. You know, so some may only be able to give five pounds. Another person can give 50,000 pounds, you know, but it's, it's equal in all this stuff. And I said, but what if it doesn't work? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And she said, Debbie, you just die. You just die. And it's like, ah! And, you know, I, I, I've done it too many times. I can't do it again. Um, but, you know, it's just been an incredible roller coaster ride. The cause is so worthwhile. Every time you press through um, a painful challenge, uh, a new level of risk, you open the door. It's like you knock down walls and hundreds of other people can come through. It's like for them, it's, it's easy. You know, you press through and they get it. And they then can walk through challenges and difficulties because you've gone first. Um, I'm just going to finish with, um, I was going to tell you some other things, but we're running out of time and I'll save them for um, another talk. But um, some of you will have heard me talk about uh, working with prostitutes. And um, one of the, in the early days, one of the things that was just so exciting was the the Lord had spoken to me in a, what I thought was an audible voice, but um, I had to wait years before it came to pass. And um, I, I was a young mum at the time, and I thought I heard the Lord say, bless the prostitutes. And, um, and I just didn't know where in London. It's such a vast place. I didn't know where to go and where to begin. But when we moved to Nottingham to plant, we had been planting the church for about a year, 
And um, one of the guys in our church said, I just think we're going we're gonna to find ourselves ministering to prostitutes. And um, I thought, wow, that's interesting because I remembered this word from the Lord. And then the next night, someone came around to dinner and she said um, she'd just come from a different church. And uh, there she'd met a woman who um, was visiting, who was a believer but wasn't really a regular churchgoer who had an outreach project um, into the prostitute community. So it wasn't a Christian project, but I thought, I've got to get involved. I've got to find out about this. And I ended up getting involved with um, this outreach project. And uh, I was a believer, but everybody there, except for Sue who ran it, she was, um, she was a believer, but she wasn't churched. And uh, so I remember being there for a while and... Um, one day Sue comes in and she says um, she had terrible flu. She's like all coldy and, and runny nose and hot. And, and she suddenly said, De- uh, Debbie's going to pray for me. And, uh, and in front of all these girls, the prostitutes and the other workers there, we had to gather around Sue and it was like doing clinic. You know, I had to show that this is the Holy Spirit resting on Sue and we're going to break the power of this flu. And it was amazing uh, to watch, um, you know, the girls kind of, seeing the power of God at work. And I began to realize that God is so there when we're outside in uncomfortable places where we least expect God to be. Of course he's there, just as Jesus was. And um, I remember a couple of weeks later, Mo, she was one of the women who worked there, and she had come from a, a drugs background. She, she dealt in arms uh, to to get money for drugs and she'd ended up in prison for many years and Sue had looked after her child and it was a dramatic story but she now worked with these girls but she didn't like me because she thought I was going to be evangelizing everybody and telling everybody that there was you know that you know judgment and they shouldn't be prostitutes and all this and I really just wanted to show the love of Jesus there and uh, but one day after sort of opportunities to pray and chat with girls and invite them to church and I think we'd gone in as a as an early church plant, we had taken uh, a number of our small groups in and redecorated this place. And, and so we'd done a, a, some things to just demonstrate that we loved them unconditionally. And I remember um, an occasion on which one of the, the guys, who, a transvestite, who would sell his body at night, uh, well, day and night, um, but he came in and he had a set of acrylic nails that had gone wrong, so they were infected. And, um, and so we were kind of chatting to him, and he was so upset and flustered about his nails. And so I said, well, can I pray for you? And so we began to pray for this. Well, I began to pray, but Mo was there. And, and I remember realizing um, that Mo had been impacted by some of the things that had gone on at, at this prostitute outreach center, and that Jesus was getting to her. Because as we prayed for this guy, and he began to weep, as, as he just began to experience God's unconditional love and his hands were getting warm and tingly and things were going on. And I remember Mo joining in and saying, yes, Jesus, everything that Debbie's prayed, I agree with it. And, uh, and I suddenly realized that she had started a journey, that her journey with the Lord had begun. And um, it was so exciting. Well, there came a time when, as a church, we started to do our own projects and um, I had found out from working at POW some of the needs that were not being met by POW. And, and clearly they, the girls were encountering Jesus, but they, they, did, they weren't going to be kind of discipled. And we needed some more bridges. And so we started uh, a work 
where some of the things that power couldn't do with clothing and furniture and a, hangout, a place where people could come and hang out and, and get just more prayer and recovery groups of various kinds and addiction, you know, um, helping people break free of addictions and things like that. And we got that ministry going. And then so a number of the girls that I met at Powell started transitioning across to coming to our Archers project. And, and some of them are, are in church with us. And I, when I think about some of the things that have come out of these ministries where we reach into our city, I, I just think this really is a cause worth dying for. Caroline uh, shared her testimony. She's a businesswoman. But when she first came across the Lord and realized that Jesus loved her, she was, a, she was on the streets, homeless. She was an alcoholic. And she would um, come out of her hiding place when the cabin, which is, uh, distributes food around the city, sets up a cabin and gives out hot food and blankets. And she would come out with her sort of blankets and uh, just she was, had had a mental breakdown and she said it was the worship. These people would play worship on the streets in the bitter cold, in the snow. They would be out there singing love songs to Jesus. And she said it was the worship. And then she said, some of them began to pray for me. And it was the power of forgiveness, both receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness. That's what set me free. And she gave her testimony when she was baptized. And you would never have known. And this woman, I mean, it took her a while to get baptized. But by the time she got baptized, she was, you know, glamorous. I mean, you would never have known that that was her past. And those stories are the ones that that they just keep us going, don't they? Why don't we pray? Let's uh, let's pray for each other. Let's let's minister. I just think the Lord wants to do more with us. And let's stand.